Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nutmeg Book Drops High School Edition. I'm your host, Christina Carpino from the Essex Library Association. I'm Amanda Ursinus, the Children's Librarian at Harwinton Public Library. And also joining us is Shannon Dulesky, the author of Mary Underwater and forthcoming Gabe in the After. Uh, field Guide to the North American Teenager. Who do you think should pick up this book? I've been I recommending think- it to fans of Bean Girls, personally. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. It feel, It's like spot-on, snarky teenager who thinks he's, like, better than everyone. And he learns that he's not. Um, and I think, like, any teen who kind of thinks they're better than everyone else, this is a good one for them. <laughs> also, anyone who likes Gilmore Girls. It's snark, but it's, like, very well-written snark. Yes. Real witty, yes. Yeah, these are very intelligent teenagers. So Norris has moved to Texas from Canada, and he's given this yellow notebook by the guidance counselor as part of his welcoming gift. He starts just kind of writing his observations. Why do you think he actually utilizes that notebook the way he does? I really like when there's like a gimmicky like thing like that in books. I'm not like if gimmick is a bad word. I mean it in a really good way. Um, I love that he had this thing that, and then it was important to the plot by the end of the book. Um, I thought it was really cool. I'm also like, I just moved to Texas three years ago. So super familiar with the... uh, it was from Boston to Austin. Um, super familiar with the like heat heat change, um, and I really enjoyed that. But I thought I thought the notebook was really cool and a good way for him to like kind of process what he was going through. Yeah, I think that's like a a classic loner trope. Interestingly enough, he always judges other people in the story for being stereotypes at first, but it's such a stereotypical thing to like be the kid with the notebook. I was definitely the kid with the notebook in high school. And I think when you have a literary mind and you're as witty as he is, it makes sense that he would want to write down his thoughts. There's a lot going on in his head, but he doesn't know anyone. He moves to this strange place. So it's kind of cool to see him like write down everything he thinks and then definitely with the mean girls vibe it's definitely a burn book (laughs) oh yeah so I did the opposite move um because I lived in Dallas Fort Worth area until um before fourth grade and then I moved to Connecticut so it has been 20 plus (laughs) years and I'm still not used to the cold like I'm wearing a sweater right now it is 80 degrees outside I sat outside on my lunch break in my sweater that's impressive it is very hot right now (laughs) oh I love that yeah it's very it's so different yeah I was very like aware of that change too I remember my kids were like before we moved they were like it's 60 degrees it's so hot this is in Massachusetts and I was like oh boy just you wait like it's gonna be so bad and yes it's like 105 here today so (laughs) yeah I am a New England girl Um, through and through and have never left so I'm like 60 melting (laughs) (laughs) so on top of having to move from Canada to Texas which you've got a big climate shift there you've got a big culture shift there he doesn't know anyone and his mom decides to take it upon herself to try to make him some friends by hanging up a flyer that he's starting a hockey team He has no knowledge of this. Why do you think she does that? 
How would you feel if your mom did that to you? That was so cringeworthy. Yeah, it was super. I thought it was cute. I mean, like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine as a 16, 17 year old having that happen. It would be mortifying. But yeah, I thought it was really cute. I loved Liam. He was my favorite character. And so I thought it was a cute little, their little friendship, neat, cute, was adorable. It was. I would be mortified if my mom did that. But I love the way that he comes back at her. His response is just like so articulate and sarcastic. And it's not just like, hey, you ruined my life, like sulky teenager. It's just like such a great interaction between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I feel like my mom knows me well enough that we wouldn't be in that situation. (laughs) But as a teenager... I, I think I would have like crawled into a hole and never spoken to anyone again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't. He's just kind of like, okay, well, we can play hockey together. Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, it was cute. I definitely loved the the hockey team, how it just sort of organically grew and grew to include a lot of people that you weren't expecting it to include. I'm not gonna lie, I was expecting the hockey team to fail. Like I was expecting it to be like just him and Liam, like going and, and learning how to skate and them having a friendship through that but I wasn't expecting it to actually fill out and be become like an actual team that was a happy surprise to me yeah I like that too it it definitely turned my expectations around because I expected them to get made fun of for it or to have some sort of confrontation with the jocks about it. So it was cool that they ended up just kind of joining the team and then all getting to know each other as people more. Yeah, I thought it was like super important the the Patrick character joining the team and then them being like okay with each other I thought was really important because that's how many, you know, that's a lot of high school relationships, especially with guys, like where it's like, I don't really like this guy, but he's my teammate and we're okay with each other. I thought that was cool. I was expecting, so I have always been on the line between being a jock and a nerd myself. So like at first when I encountered the like jock stuff, I was like, okay, <laughs> come on Ben, like let's see what you're going to do. Cause I know you won this big award. So, um, and I was really very pleasantly surprised and happy how how uh, he kind of towed the line with those two two groups. Yeah, I like the the descriptors at the beginning of each chapter, how he starts out with like yeah. the qualifier of whatever category of person it is. And then one of them is like identifying characteristics, habitat, like things that this person usually does. And then it's like, yeah. the, he, he turns that stereotype kind of on its head because he gets to know these people. Yeah, super cute. I liked that a lot too. So speaking of how their perceptions kind of changed here. So we, we see Patrick evolve throughout the story or we see Norris's perception of Patrick evolve over the story. How do his views of other people change? Yeah, I really like, you know, the that first scene where he meets the cheerleaders. I was like very nervous about what was going to happen. And I was like, okay, I know he's, I know this is probably setting it up like he's going to learn they're, they're cool or whatever. Um, I did like that he still didn't like the one Meredith very much at the end. I thought that was, felt very real to me. Um, but I, I did like how he, how he kind of changed his mind about Maddie and Artie 
yeah it was cute I liked how and he learned so much through it too I felt like my understanding of the characters changed as the story went by too and I saw somebody say that this is perfect for fans of Pride and Prejudice and Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite books of all time and now that I've heard that I look back on the story and I definitely I can so see parts of that as far as like his relationship with Maddie especially like they both have these kind of assumptions about one another that turn out to not be true but also his relationship with Artie I think Artie's sort of the Mr. Wickham here like he's all like thinks he's gonna be into Artie and then it's not so great what are your thoughts on the the Pride and Prejudice parallel and then also were you shipping Norris and Artie, is that a couple that you wanted to see happen? Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I could just keep talking, so I don't want to, like, I wanted to give you some space to do it. Okay, so I've never read Pride and Prejudice, so. (laughs) What? I don't know. I know. I'm, like, the world's worst English teacher and author. I know. I'm, like, so bad at stuff like that. But I knew, like, I knew, as I think, because, you know, when you're a writer, you just, like, you know how stories are going to kind of be set up and I mean I didn't know how things are going to play out but I knew she was not I knew Maddie was the real love interest here um I thought you know he he broke down the manic pixie dream girl as as well as he could I I think it's like you know his voice is a new voice that we don't hear a lot of so I thought it was you know do whatever tropes you want to do and uh I I knew she wasn't going to be the one and I was mad at her at the end for making out with Ian, but, um, (laughs) and then I didn't, I just assumed, wait, we're not talking about that. I'll stop. (laughs) But no, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly shipping them. I got annoyed that like the, the snow globe was such a big deal. Like, of this huge declaration of love or something. Um, I got mad at her for that, but I was supposed to be mad at her, so. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really get the snow globe. I do like the idea that it could be related to Pride and Prejudice a lot because I love that book so much, which in itself is probably a stereotype that a librarian (laughs) loves Pride and Prejudice. I mean, I'm the librarian wearing a cardigan right now, so. (laughs) We are just stereotypes all around. (laughs) sometimes they fit I'm trying to like assign all the characters to their doppelgangers now in in Pride and Prejudice but I kind of love the idea that he's Elizabeth Bennet and that Artie is Wickham and that kind of makes me understand Artie a little bit more I did not really want them to be together either but like Shannon said when someone starts out the book with a person they like almost never end up with them in the end because of the way that plots work but also like his conversation conversations with Maddie just seemed a lot more interesting and she was very intelligent not that Artie wasn't but they were just like much more substantial the things that they talked about so it made me want them together for sure I I don't feel like Artie ever overcame his assumptions of who she was I feel like he was like, oh, here she is. She's this manic pixie dream girl. She's this artsy, gonna kind of do whatever she wants type of personality. And that was kind of exactly who she was with him, at least. Like Mm. she never, their their relationship never 
progressed past those initial assumptions of each other. They never, I don't know, broke each other's barriers down, I guess. And relatively quickly right. with him and Maddie, where they're having a conversation that is almost hostile, like openly hostile. And then all of a sudden it switches to a regular conversation where they're just being sarcastic with one another. I really liked the moment when Norris meets Artie's parents and finds out that all of the Harry Potter books are Artie's dads. And he says he's a Gryffindor. So then Norris is like, yeah, me too. And Norris is so not a Gryffindor. Um, what do you, why do you think he, why do you think he lies about that? I feel like, like that's everyone... such a seemingly inconsequential thing to lie about. Everyone I knew, and this might just be for our generation, but like the early 2000s, everyone was a Gryffindor. And then like 10 years later, everyone was like suddenly switching and then deciding to be a different house. <laughs> so maybe Gryffindor was just the cool thing to be because the main character of the book was in Gryffindor. So you kind of felt like you had to side with that. I am a Ravenclaw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Think that it, it was part of his whole arc though. Like he wasn't, he didn't really know who he was. And um, so lying about who he was was part of that if he had been like so self-assured like yeah definitely definitely a Slytherin he would have already like his character would have already been actualized you know so I think it was necessary for the the plot to be like I have no idea who I am to make it a, a true coming of age I'm a Hufflepuff <laughs> I was never I never said I was a Gryffindor because I know I'm not a Gryffindor I did used to think I was a Ravenclaw because I like what books. made you decide that you were a Hufflepuff? I don't know. It happened like a long time. I mean, a long time ago, relatively. I feel like I've been a Hufflepuff since college. I wonder if teens now even relate to Harry Potter as much as they did. We've talked about this before for our generation, but I just, I wonder if like when I was reading it, I was like, is this going to date this book in like 10 years when I'm trying to get my son to read this book? And he's like, no, mom. <laughs> I don't want to read Harry Potter. It is people like categorizing themselves and it fits the like the vibe of the book and where you know this is people have these very rigid I'm this person or, or he Norris does that you know yeah. he classifies everyone so it, it makes sense that it would be part of it. Switching gears here Liam and Norris's friendship I just I love their friendship so much. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, they made me really happy. I like that was um I was not expecting that and I really enjoyed that and how they kind of both just accepted each other for how they were and their personalities. And I do think their personalities meld together really well with the like kind of stoic, introspective, quiet person with this like brash one who will say anything he's thinking. Um, seems to pair well in real life too. So I really, I that was my favorite part of the book was was their friendship. Yeah, I liked that too. And that that is pretty relatable to real life. There's always pairings of introverts and extroverts all over the place because we just do really well together. <laughs> yeah. I why do you think why do you think Liam is so quick to try to make friends with Norris when no one else seems to really want to make friends with Norris and Norris doesn't want to make friends with anyone I feel like it was the concept of a fresh start are we doing spoilers yes yeah. okay because of his suicide attempt 
if that, I mean, I don't know if he, his attempt to hurt himself, um, I don't know if he was trying to kill himself, but everyone at the school seems like they know about it. It's this open secret. And then a new person comes to the school and he's the only one that doesn't know about it. And so suddenly that seems like an opportunity for something new for Liam. So he doesn't need to go into this backstory or broach this painful thing that he's going through. He can just start afresh and make a friendship. So I think that was why. Yeah, agreed. And they're both coming from this like point of where the entire school is talking about them. Um, so I feel like if that's, you know, Liam's like, okay, everyone's talking about him. Everyone's talking about me. Like, why not? I, I thought that was delightful. Pair up and be outcast together. <laughs> yeah. I think Liam was probably my favorite character in this book, but Maddie was a second, very close second to me as well. And just the, the visual of, at one point, Norris says something like, she's in the middle of the pyramid because she's the one that has to hold everything together. And that, you know, that's how she is in so many different environments. She's like that at school. She's like that at home. She's like that with her, with the business, which is also her family. Um, She's kind of the one that's always pulling people together. And I think we see that, especially with how she connects with Liam and with Norris. And she's kind of the center, I guess, of the story in a lot of ways without being the protagonist. Yeah, I liked that she she wasn't like exactly a martyr as a character. Like she wasn't the idea of perfect girl who is sweet and kind and makes no mistakes, but she was very sincere as well as sarcastic. And I feel like that's not always something that you see a lot in female protagonists. It's like one or the other. Yeah, she felt really real to me because she was, yeah, she wasn't all of one. I liked, I could tell, like, I really enjoyed watching him weave in, like, little lines that were clues to, like, Norris's into her romantically. I thought he did a really good job of that. Or, like, you know, at the wedding when he thought she looked pretty in her dress. And, like, I thought I thought that was expertly done. And key lime pie. Do you <laughs> like key lime pie? I've never had key lime pie. I didn't even know it was a thing here. I'm like, I don't know if it's like, I, is it a Texas thing? I have no idea. I don't think it's a Texas thing. It's just a her family thing. I, I, I think thought, well, it might be a little bit more like a southeastern United States thing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like Florida. Right. I guess it's Key Lime Pie. Yeah, Key Lime. Key West. I do like Key Lime Pie. I have never tried it either. Really? Oh, yeah. it's good. Got like a graham cracker crust. It's a little bit tart. I like it. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really good. I just have never come across it or tried it for some reason. Maybe it's just not available as much in the Northeast. Maybe. But I mean, you're from Massachusetts, so. Yeah, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I I've had it, but I don't know where I first got it encountered. Maybe we'll have to track down some key lime pie. We're going to switch gears and we're going to discuss solo. I have never read a novel on verse, which is like, I, you're like, do you read books? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't read Pride and Prejudice, but I had never read one or read one like fully. So I was, I really enjoyed this. I thought it was cool. I liked 
I thought it was going to be all poems, like the whole, like just the whole thing, but there were so many, you know, there were songs and there were text messages. I thought that was super, I was very, I was like, no, I'm on the right. (laughs) (laughs) You would do really well at that, actually. Who would you um, recommend this one to? I would recommend this one to anyone who is like into yearny love stories or who likes music a lot. I'm having trouble coming up with a comp title. This is only the second book in verse that I have read. It's not usually the kind of book that I'm drawn to novels in verse, but I did really like it. And I, I liked the poetry, like the poetic style of it. Although I liked the poems better than the lyrics for the songs. Me too. It was interesting because it almost seemed like in my head they were written by different authors, but it, I don't know, it's still all in his voice, but the style seemed a lot different. Yeah, the the, like yearning I felt from the narrator's voice with when he would describe his, the girls, (laughs) when he would describe Chapel and then later Joy. The yearning in those poems versus the songs was so much more pronounced to me, and I really liked that. Yeah, I liked that better. It almost made me not need the the lyrics, but I know he put that in because he is um, a musician. Yeah. But yeah, I liked the poetry better. Why do you think the author chose to tell this story in verse? Yeah, that's what I was like thinking about that while I was reading it, and I think it really fit. I was like, I was, you know, I write in prose, so I was like, I wonder, I really liked it, and I liked that it was a novel of verse, and I was like, I wonder if I would have liked it as much if it were prose, and I don't think it would have had the same vibe. I felt like this was really, like, it really fit the feeling. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I really liked that it was told like that and it made me really excited like I when I start when I read someone's stuff and then I start to kind of think like my inner monologue starts to sound like the narrator is when I know like oh they've done a really good job (laughs) um and and I was doing that and that's why like Daisy Daisy Jones and the Six I again not a YA title and um but that had a very similar, they included the song lyrics in that, and I thought that was really cool. And it was told in like an interview style. Oh, I also, this one also had like newspaper clipping, like articles in there too. I thought I really like when people play around with structure and where the story is coming from. Yeah, I liked it a lot. And I was surprised because usually when I open up a book and I realize it's a novel in verse, I almost immediately close it. I'm not not sure why that is if it's just something that I haven't forced myself to read before but it's it's a very emotional story and I feel like poetry is really good at conveying strong emotions and it's definitely like I think that's why it took me a while to get through in a good way because each poem is just like packed like a punch with so many emotions and there's so much going on that you kind of want to take your time with it and just go slow. Let's jump into the plot here. When Blade goes to Ghana, this has a huge impact on on his life. How do how did it change his life and and why? Well, I think the first it separated into two halves, which I was interested in seeing how that was going to play out. But I the first half he's like unhappy 
and I was thinking, you know, like that summer in between your senior year of high school and college is already a weird time where you like don't know what to do with yourself. It feels kind of like, okay, I've got six weeks. What do you do? And so he's kind of stuck in this, like, he's got a lot going for him. You know, he's rich. He's from a really successful family. He's salutatorian, which I thought was really cool. Um, but his dad's addiction makes it really hard to, like, just get by. And then his mother dying too so the second half i really liked that he like takes charge of it he decides he's gonna change his fate type thing um i thought that was cool i was not expecting i did not know that was coming but i guess i would couldn't have known that unless you knew that he was adopted <laughs> and that he finds out in this like wild argument with his sister so yeah it was cool I liked that. I like I like an act one and an act two structure. Anytime someone goes away to a different country in a book and then comes back knowing more about themselves, I really like that kind of story. But I, I liked the way it was set up a lot because it just seems like everything does kind of explode in his home life. And then what choice do you have but to go away somewhere else? And it is kind of just like presented pretty conveniently that he can go and learn this new piece of his history. I thought I read it too fast at first because I was like, oh wait, he was adopted? And <laughs> I like went back and then I was like, oh, okay, he's finding this out too, as I'm finding it out. But yeah, the chance to, to meet his mother for the first time and realizing that he was adopted because his family has such an impact on him growing up the idea that other people have of him turning out like his father and the kind of shadow of his family over him realizing that he has new history almost seems like an opportunity a scary opportunity but an opportunity i do love that in books when when i as the reader find something out at the same same time as the protagonist like that you can really i don't know get into their head a little bit um yeah it made me forget i was reading a book and I, that is a big moment for me when I forget that it's not real. And I'm like, whoa, this just happened. <laughs> a lot of characters in this book, including Blade's father, assume that Blade is going to end up being just like his father. Why do, th why do they have these assumptions? Yeah, it's weird. His dad, like, thinks that when he knows, like, his dad knows he's adopted. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know, yeah, because Blade's, like, super successful. He, you know, he's doing a good job. I, I don't know. He didn't seem, I guess the part where he is, like, um, making out with that other girl at the party while he has a girlfriend who he claims he's, like, super duper in love with is a little indicator that maybe he's not, you know, as, um, as great or likable as a main character as we think he is. I was a little shocked that he did that. Not that, I mean, it makes sense. Like, I get it. But yeah, that she, that was the only, like, indication to me that he was gonna turn out like that. I felt bad for his sister, where it's like, she sucks at music. <laughs> that I was like, I felt, well, there's so many, like, I was picturing so many other famous families while I was like you know thinking about 
Ozzy Osbourne's family and the Kardashians. And I was thinking about like Billy Ray Cyrus and all his kids. Um, and what it does to you when you're raised in a really successful musician or famous household and like the pressure it puts on you to also be super successful but like the do it your way must be it's not something I've had to deal with but you know it was like I thought that was a really cool I haven't read a I haven't read a YA where where we've got a character like that and I thought it was any closing thoughts on on these books I thought they were both just kind of fun views into the mind of a teenage boy and just sort of like very typical teenage relationships. And like you were saying, like there's the, uh, in this one, Blade's relationship with Chapel. It's just so teenagery. Like that's how I felt about Field Guide to the North American Teenager too. Although in a way that one has definitely got a lot of adult like wit and things like that going on in it. But maybe it's because I, I was never a teenage boy. So I don't know, but I... <laughs> I like to imagine that I'm getting this view into their brains. Yeah, yeah, I really, I did like, I I realized like I don't read very many books by men in general and that I really think the YA community benefits from hearing from so many different kinds of voices. And I really enjoyed both of these books. I liked um, that they, I liked that they were like, kind of typical teenage problems, but written in a very like expertly way. Um, they both, you know, the poetry in Solo was amazing. And I thought that uh, North American Teenager was real quirky and cool and um, really well written. So I was glad to add these to my YA brain collection. <laughs> yeah, I realized kind of the same thing when I was reading them. Oh, I can't remember the last time I read a book that was from the viewpoint of um, a male, not just a male teenager, teenager, but a male, because I definitely gravitate towards like the strong female heroines and whatever genre I'm reading. Um, but I'm really glad that I read them. They're really, really good books. And both of the characters are just so intelligent in different ways. So I can recommend these to teenagers when they come in the library now. Shannon, you want to tell me a little bit about what you're working on? Yeah. I had a middle grade come out in April of 2020 about a, called Mary Underwater about a girl who builds and pilots a submarine across the Chesapeake Bay. And um, my second book is coming out next spring. And it's called Gabe in the After, and it's post-apocalyptic about a boy who's living in a survivor community and a new girl shows up on his island in Maine. So that's what I'm working on. I just turned in um, my line edits Monday. Busy, busy, but exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. If you like Anne of Green Gables and dystopian fiction, then you will love this book. Yeah, it's a weird How did you movie. guess like my two favorite things? <laughs> Well, I originally started writing it as fan, like, I was like, I couldn't write in 2020. And I was like, or 2019, I was having a really hard time. And I was like, I'll just do like a Anna Green Gables fan fiction and see how that goes. And they bought it. So, <laughs> so lucky. Yeah. Um, and 
is my literary equivalent. Like if I were a book character, I think that, that she is who I most likely would be. Oh, that's great. She's awesome. She's wonderful. I wrote it from his point of view. So it's his name is Gabe, but um, it's from Gilbert's point of view if they were somehow survived the apocalypse which was fun it was really fun to do her she's like a ridiculous character but she was a lot of fun to write <laughs> the things she says well uh, i'm excited for that <laughs> thank you so much shannon for sharing about your book and for joining us for this discussion and now we have coming up an interview with ben philippe <laughs> Uh, today we're here with Ben Philippe, author of the 2022 High School Nutmeg Nominee, A Field Guide to the North American Teenager. I'm Christina Carpino. I am the Children's and Teen Librarian at the Essex, uh, Essex Library Association. I am Amanda Ersinis. I am the Children's Librarian at Harwinton Public Library. And we're very grateful that you took time out of your schedule to uh, chat with us today. And I know that our teens that are going to be listening to this are going to really appreciate getting some insight um, into this awesome book and into the author. That's so nice. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Our first question is kind of broad. What was your inspiration for this book? Uh, I grew up in Canada. So I went to a very small and polite high school. Uh, I was the only black person there, but for a little while, but I was really fascinated by the American high school. Like when you watch movies like uh, Can't Hardly Wait, 10 Things I Hate About You, Bring It On, like the American high school is such a cool ecosystem. And it felt like this, I don't know, Hunger Games where everyone had their tribes and they were all going to war and everyone was a cool archetype. And I really wanted to set a story there, um, this imagined place. And that was sort of like the first seed of the Field Guide to the North American Teenager. So you, you kind of mentioned that, that this book talks about a lot of the ways that Norris kind of catalogs people because we have all of these different tribes, as you said. Uh, and this is something that happens in society as a whole too, consciously or unconsciously. Um, especially in high school. Um, we always place people into categories. Why do you think that this is so common, especially in high school? And is this something that is more common in America than it was in your experiences in Canada? Uh, I don't know if it's more common in America. I think because America produces so much of the culture in the world, like all the movies I watched in Canada were movies and TV shows that were from America. So I think it uh, exports uh, those archetypes a little bit more. Um, but I just think it's, you know, part of the teenage experience. You're trying to figure out who you are and a way that happens is by how other people see you. So if you're good at sports and you start to excel at sports, your friends are also going to be good at sports and you're probably going to be on the school team. And before you know it, you're at the jock table. And the same thing for almost any other interest you have. And, you know, I think some of those things are self-fulfilling prophecies. Like when I was in high school, I just accepted the self-myth that I was bad at math. And it's one of those things that once you say it once or twice and you start living by it, you're like, oh, no, I'm not good at that. I'm a wordsmith. Um, it just becomes true. I think that's true for a lot of archetypes out there. I know that that is definitely a thing with librarians. That's a common running joke is how bad we are with math. <laughs> and 
Uh, it's just I think maybe we're not that bad at it. We just sort of like accepted that we don't like this. We don't have exactly. to. Exactly. <laughs> if we were really that bad at math, we wouldn't be so good at keeping statistics. Exactly. We have spreadsheets for That's everything. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, don't don't knock yourself because you can't figure out, you know, the hypotenuse of a triangle. You'll find some other math that does make sense to you at some point. <laughs> uh, there has never been a more universal but also useless skill than calculating <laughs> the hypotenuse of a triangle. <laughs> like a squared plus b squared equals c squared. I could why? What does I know what it means? I, I, we all know what it means, but just this random thing of all the things that could have been passed on or like just like imprinted into uh, every education system in the world, it was that one. Yeah, and you know, such a common useless skill. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school when it came time to like balance a check. Like actually, you know, I got my first check from like my summer job, and I had to endorse it. I had to Google that. But, you know, the hypotenuse of a triangle I could have calculated in my sleep. I only know how to do checks properly from watching um, The Price is Right growing up. And there's <laughs> one game where you have to write out a check. And I always wanted to be on that show. So I, I made sure that I would know how to do it properly. Because sometimes people would get up there and they wouldn't know how to fill out a check. And it was very embarrassing. Oh, my God. The That's humiliation. Amazing. Yeah. I, I had to go through to Google. I was like, oh, you have to write your name on the back too? Fun. <laughs> So many things that they don't teach you in school and so many stereotypes that they instill. <laughs> so am I correct? You came to the U.S. for college. Mm -hmm. So this was a, a semi-autobiographical experience, it seems like. I uh, Yes and no. I think it was because it was my first book. Uh, you know, there's the old saying that every first book is an autobiography, whether you mean to or not. I, I really, in my head, I thought I was writing someone who was very different from me, uh, Norris Kaplan, you know, this snarky teen who has like a, a wise word for everyone he meets, who is proudly asocial. I really thought that character was different from me, but everyone who knows me who read the book was like, oh no, this is you, Ben. <laughs> from page one until the last page. Uh, so looking back, I think there's a lot of myself in the character, um, but I gave him some traits that I... I don't think I have, to be honest. Uh, for one thing, Norris genuinely doesn't care what people think about him. Uh, like he's lonely uh, when things start to go poorly at his new school. He, w he wishes he was back home with his best friend and his dad, um, but he doesn't care if people don't like him. And I, I think I was always like the thirsty teen who really wanted people to like me. Um, so I think that is the key difference after much self psychoanalysis of <laughs> Norris. Did you feel kind of the same way when you went to college? Did you see lots of stereotypes or like different groups of people all around you or did it feel different because everyone was slightly older? Uh, I loved college. I uh, honestly, I think what happened to me was that a lot of like the, the big moments that are typically associated with like high school, for me, they happened in college. So it's really where I bloomed. Ugh, I hate that verb. Um, <laughs> uh, it was also in New York City. So it was like this big change from uh, a small town in Quebec, Canada to like moving to New York and it's so crowded and everyone is different. And I was that one of those kids who just kind of stayed on campus for the first year, uh, but then started to branch out. And that's how I fell in love with New York City. And I think 
you know, everyone that functions in society ends up being like falling into one category or another. Like we're all stereotypes, whether we want to be or not. Um, but the cool thing about New York and by extension, like college for me was that nobody cares here, right? It wasn't a school where like, oh, the entire social life of Colombia is in the sorority and fraternity system. Like if that's what you wanted to do, cool. If you wanted to be an artsy kid, also cool. If you wanted to go to the library on Saturday night and just write papers until 4 a.m., great. Um, and I got to do a little bit of all of it. And uh, yeah, I love it. Everybody's minding their own business in New York, which is part of the reason why I fell in love with that city. Yeah. If there is one place in the U.S. where it's like very acceptable to be more than one thing, it would definitely be New York. <laughs> it's a good place to be. <laughs> Well, and like you said, everyone minds their own business. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that if you are in a a more southern city like mm -hmm. like Austin, that may be not the case. But when you have the northern sentimental sent sentimentality of like I am me and you are you, and we're not going to talk to each other, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, combined I, with a big city. <laughs> I think at most it's like a uh an indifference to other people because sometimes like you know like any place a, a big city can be exhausting too it can be very lonely because uh yeah everyone's minding their own business and like people who uh aren't part of your quote-unquote tribe they're just you know background characters on the subway so it can be lonely too but it's also really freeing and yeah i love college which is why i ended up like being a teacher at my old college for five years now geez yeah. Oh, nice. Um, so you mentioned that there's a lot of the stereotypes and those continue from high school and the college, but maybe we just don't care about them as much anymore. Um, but in this book, you kind of upend a lot of stereotypes. You know, we have the first impressions of the cheerleaders, but then that kind of breaks down a little bit. Um, and then even just the stereotypical, like, you know, loner or what makes you a jock. Um, was this an intentional choice to kind of upend those stereotypes? Yeah, that was ideally the goal. I'm glad whenever I hear that it came through. It was essentially Norris, I think, as a way of protecting himself, just puts everybody in a box. Like nothing can disappoint or shock him about life in America or life in Texas because everyone is something that can easily be quantifiable. Um, you know, he has that exchange with like, oh, I hate Patrick. I hate this guy with hairy armpits. And someone else tells him like, well, maybe the reason he doesn't like you is because you keep calling him hairy armpits. So he just puts everyone at a distance by putting them in uh, boxes. But eventually, you know, stare they, those archetypes don't hold water. They, they can be a part of someone, but uh, we're all more than, than one thing. So even like the jock who pushed him down the stairs ends up having layers and the loner Liam um, has like a full backstory and the cheerleader ends up being like the nicest person in Texas because I think I, it's always a little bit random for me that if you're popular that means you have to be evil too. Uh, <laughs> people I knew who were very popular uh, in high school they're actually incredibly nice and um, a little bit of it is like superficial nice, but they were nice because everyone was nice to them. So when they think back to high school, like, oh, I love my school. Everybody was nice to each other. And that wasn't the experience of everyone else <laughs> in school, obviously. But for them, it was like a very pleasant time. So I wanted to write uh, Madison as a nice cheerleader who knows herself, likes her friends, and is nice to, you know, new kids 
who come into the school. And little by little, I wanted to invert that uh, way, way back when I was first like outlining the book and thinking of the concept. The idea was that there was not a bully archetype. We meet the loner, we meet the art kids, uh, jocks, cheerleaders, uh, but we don't meet a bully. And the idea was that Norris ends up being the bully because he's the one who sort of writes all these horrible things about uh, everyone at school. Uh, but then I moved away from that because I think there's something intentional about bullying. And Norris was just venting in a, in a diary. He didn't think anyone would ever see. So I definitely wanted to play with those expectations and uh, preconceptions about archetypes. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that made this book really stand out from a lot of other um, realistic fiction written in this, you know, it it seemed very real because none of those people fit specifically into boxes. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully that's that's the goal. I, I think if we spend, I, I try to sometimes think of like people I really actively dislike. And I dislike a lot of people. I'm not... <laughs> a pleasant person but I'm like if you spend an hour with someone you will find something you like about them or you will learn something that sort of like shocks you or surprises you or doesn't fit into a neat book box like there will be one jagged puzzle piece I think everyone has those um so that was hopefully uh the the thesis of this book gotcha I also really liked the way that you the way that you wrote it isn't like the the typical way that like a movie portrays high school. I feel like you kind of, you played with the idea of a story and how stories usually have happy endings in typical media. Um, do you mind if I read out one of the passages from you? No, by all means. So this is a part I really liked at the end. It wasn't the happy ending that he wanted. Then again, there were no such things as happy endings. Happy endings were artificial things manufactured out of less than ideal circumstances. A divorce wasn't the end of family, nor was someone moving away at the end of a, the end of a friendship. And I thought that that was really novel because I feel like a lot of stories in um, the media portray divorce as the end of a family or like bad things as just bad things. And you portray it more of like, this happens. And then you move on. <laughs> and I thought that that was really refreshing. So yeah. was that important to you to like have a different, more relatable form of story? Yeah, definitely. I think so. like the tension in that for me to write it was that, well, the book is ending. So I can yeah. see all that stuff. But like people who are holding the book realized that, well, there are like nine pages left. So the philosophy of, you know, life goes on kind of clashes with the form of the book, but uh, yeah, I think when I think back uh, to my life, I always feel like I'm, I'm looking for beginnings and endings, whereas like I, uh, the more time goes on, I'm not being very eloquent about this, but like the more time goes on, the more you realize that like life isn't those big events. It's not like the first day uh, of school or the last day of school or graduation, like life is the stuff that happens in between just the day-to-day -day rhythms. And I wanted to highlight that a little bit by putting everybody in strange um, chronological positions. Like the book starts at uh, with a divorce, so the family separating, but they reunite at the end. And I, it was important for me to keep the character of Eric, which is 
uh, Norris's best friend from his previous life, who we never really see because he stays in Canada the whole time. Um, if there was a sequel, he would have he would have come to Texas, but uh, <laughs> keep him like out there because I don't think when somebody moves that ends a friendship. It can, especially when we're adult. But I think when we're younger, we like really hold on to those friendships. Um, so that was something I was trying to to play with. Uh, yeah, just the messiness of life, essentially. Uh, yeah. Teenage life can also be... <sighs> One thing my dad said to me once that really pissed me off, sorry, to <laughs> is that um, he, uh, I was having like a fight with a friend in middle school and it was really upsetting to me. And he was like, and when I was telling him about it, he was like, well, those aren't real friends. Like you'll make your real friends later. You'll make your real friends in college. And to me, that was really upsetting because these were the friends I knew, like this was the life I was living right now. So just the idea that like, oh no, this is just temporary. It, it didn't work for me. Um, your life is what you're living right now in the present tense. And I just wanted to hopefully capture some of that messiness and intensity. It was just very relatable because I think um, a lot of the stories and like the media that you mentioned, all of those American movies, are so into like tying up these experiences in neat little bows and and having closure and everything at the end of it and it's just more cathartic to read a story where it's more like life it's it's like a snapshot of this you know moment in time so as amanda was saying you know talked a lot about movies and media and this book reminded me a lot of um the movie mean girls was there an inspiration there with the whole book and I know his book is intended just to be for him, <laughs> but I kind of got that vibe from it. Uh, yeah, I mean, Mean Girls is iconic because it is maybe the one book that like, uh, not book, geez, the one movie and the musical that like defines that high school um, stereotype the best for me. Like the idea that like everyone, it's a, it's a, it's a meeting ground of multiple tribes that are all, little factions that are all fighting with each other. Uh, they're the popular kids and then they're the unpopular kids and there are no loners because everyone somehow finds a group of three people who are exactly like you. Um, <laughs> I, I definitely wanted to subvert that a little bit because I think that's a very common uh, idea of high school. And to me, that's the high school Norris walks into. Like it's a huge completely proto-american high school like i used to watch like those establishing shots of schools in movies when i was younger i was like wow can you imagine going to a school that has like three thousand people <laughs> that is wild to me um it's like a little village but yeah that is what i i wanted to play with it's it's very interesting when we see American high schools in movies. I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends online that are international and they're almost always set in California because that's where all the movies are filmed. Mm -hmm. Or even if they're not set in California, they're filmed in California where they have these open campuses for high school that's much more like a college. So like everyone's like eating lunch outside and they have their lockers outside <laughs> and I went to, I actually grew up in Texas and I, my school was like that. And we had lockers outside and our hallways were outside and then living in New England, that's such a foreign concept. So oh, even yeah. in the United States, there's such 
there's the small little rural high schools that have, you know, a graduating class of 12. And mm -hmm. then there are these huge schools with multiple buildings with thousands of students at them. Um, and that seems to be what's portrayed most in, in the media. Um, yeah, and I think part of it is aspirational, right? The idea that, you know, everything about America is like Coca-Cola and Nike and Apple, like those big, uh, sleek and cool brands and like the high school that uh, represents America to the rest of the world is that big, massive, cool construct that almost feels like a mall sometimes. Uh, that makes sense. But I think that like, yeah, the schools are a, reflect, a reflection of their community and there are no two high schools that are exactly the same across America. So, I mean, he uh, Norris moves to the middle of Texas. So there is something very sort of like football is king about his high school. Uh, but yeah, it's hopefully a little specific to Austin, Texas, which I try to capture with the disgusting heat because that was like the rough thing when I lived in Texas. And I had the opposite problem moving to Connecticut because <laughs> I was here, we had two ice storms and lost power for multiple days and had no heat. And I wanted to be back in the heat of Texas. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like every winter here. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think power is rough, but I, being a Canadian at heart, like I, I love the cold. I hate it when it's hot and muggy, like when it starts to get cold and you, ooh, let's take out the box of like scarves and hats. I'm always happy. <laughs> you have, you've been a ghostwriter as well, right? Mm -hmm. How is writing or how was writing your first book different than other writing projects that you worked on? It had my name on the cover and people interview me about it, which <laughs> I knew. The ghostwriting projects I did were like right after school when I was truly flat broke. It wasn't like cute artist broke. It was uh, browsing Craigslist for jobs, writing essays for people applying to like medical school. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there were a few projects I was able to find to just like, we'll give you $2,000 to write this book. And you're like, oh God, yes, that's rent. Yes, yes horrible because you know I think it's hard to write more than uh, 50 pages of something without getting invested in it it's not like oh I'm gonna phone this in I some writers can't maybe but I can't so I I was really happy when I sold my first book and I was able to like write something that had my name on the cover and I didn't have to sign an NDA that I can't like say what it is say my involvement in it <laughs> so that was the the biggest funnest difference and then we'd love to hear about what other projects you're working on. You've written a couple other books now since the Field Guide to the North American Teenager, but is there anything on deck right now? Yes, I, I wrote another YA novel, Charming as a Verb. Uh, that's been out for less than a year, like eight months. Um, but I'm a couple of weeks away from my first uh, adult book coming out, which is a memoir in essays it's called sure i'll be your black friend and it just talks about life you know being the only black person in a school and then just being the only black person at work and just hopefully it's fun essays about my life um that anyone can enjoy and that comes out from harper perennial at the end of the month of april very exciting looking forward to that for sure <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your book being nominated for our state book award. I know that our high schoolers will love it. Why should, this is a good question. Why should our high schoolers, they get to vote on who wins this award. So why should they vote for your book? 
I think I could beat all the other authors at Super Smash or Mario Kart. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, it's cool that readers get to vote on books they've read. But I think another way of like, you know, assessing the competition is just to have a tournament on Super Smash and I would dominate everyone else. So they should just go ahead and give me the prize. That's valid. I, I think that maybe we'll have to have a, uh, we'll have to have a new book award that's decided through <laughs> video game tournaments. Oh, that this is, is one YA author that I feel can beat me from our brief experience, but uh, all the others, I'll take them now. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us.